Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On June 12th, Washington Post Beijing Bureau Chief Anna Fifield sat down with the Washington Post Live to talk about her new book, The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un, a behind-the-scenes look at the elusive Kim family dynasty in North Korea. Let's listen. To, to Doug, um, this is really a treat for me as a, as a post-journalist. Uh, Anna really is, as Doug suggested, the gold standard in coverage of North Korea. To give you a sense of that, I'm going to read you a blurb on the back of this book. We authors always like to get blurbs from people, but rarely one as, as extraordinary as this. Evan Osnos who's writing, I'm sure many of you know in The New Yorker, who's written brilliantly about Asia and North, North Korea, says, there is quite simply no journalist in any language who's done more to unearth and tell the astounding story of Kim Jong-un than Anna Fifield. So that's our, that's our author this morning. And, and I want to open with your big scoop that has been getting reactions from President Trump uh, and a lot of other people uh, on page uh, 213 of this book, mm-hmm. uh, no doubt set in print some, some many weeks ago, you write that uh, Kim Jong-un's half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, quote, became an informant for the CIA, an agency with a track record of bringing down spies it didn't like. President Trump was asked about this uh, yesterday. The report was picked up by the Wall Street Journal. And he said, I saw the information about the CIA with respect to Kim Jong-un's brother or half-brother, and I would tell him that would not, meaning Kim Jong-un, that would not happen under my auspices. In other words, if I understood the president for swearing recruiting agents to spy on a country that still threatens us with nuclear weapons, extraordinary statement. So uh, let's start with the scoop and tell us what you can about uh, this uh, uh, role as an informant that was played by Kim Kim Jong-un, later murdered by by his Mm half-brother. Thank you, David. Thank you for that introduction. So Kim Jong-nam was Kim Jong-un's older half-brother. And we think that the two of them, I think that the two of them never actually met. They lived entirely separate, cloistered childhoods. You know, Kim Jong-il had many families with different children, and he kept them all in different compounds in Pyongyang. And, you know, even when they went to Switzerland, he sent Kim Jong-nam to Geneva and Kim Jong-un and his family to Bern. So these two had no relationship whatsoever. Um, But having said that, it was still a real surprise that Kim Jong-un would order his half-brother's assassination, uh, even for North Korea, in this very brutal way, having a chemical weapon applied to his face. Uh, He died within 20 minutes of that attack. 
Um, and there was quite a lot of puzzlement about why he would do that. Kim Jong-nam had been living outside of North Korea for almost two decades by that stage. He'd been based in Macau, but he also had a base in Beijing. He had the protection of the Chinese. Um, and so, and he had really shown no interest whatsoever in the leadership of North Korea. But having said that, North Korea, the regime is founded on this very bizarre uh, Pekdu bloodline, this idea that the family descended from this holy mountain in the north of North Korea. So technically, Kim Jong-nam could be considered a rival to the leadership of North Korea because he had this Pekdu blood running through his uh, veins. But, you know, during the course of my reporting, I was told by a very reliable source that Kim Jong-nam had been an informant for the CIA in his final years. Uh, he had been meeting his handlers in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia or Singapore, around these places, uh, and passing on what information he knew about, um, about his brother and the regime there. And even though he was in this kind of exile, he continued to have very good contacts at the top of the regime. He was very close to his uncle uh, until Kim Jong-un had him killed at the end of 2013. But he had, like, his uncle was the North Korean ambassador to Malaysia. So he continued to have these high-level contacts. He could have been a good source of information. And the reporting is that he had met his handler in Malaysia in the days before his death. And he had $120,000 in cash in his backpack uh, at the time of his death. So that would seem to give reason for Kim Jong-un to be even more concerned about him. So that's really the, the, the question of the day, I would say. Uh, is it your information, or would you, would you um, uh, assume that at the time of this grisly murder with a, with a biological uh, wep weapon, that, that Kim Jong-un was aware that his half-brother was, in effect, an asset of the CIA? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's impossible to say, and I have spent the last two years trying to get into Kim Jong-un's head, which is a very scary place. Um, but, you know, he, on so many levels, like he has the Pekdu blood, he had been openly criticizing the regime and encounters with Japanese journalists at airports around Asia, plus there was this factor. So if Kim Jong-un did know about this, yes, that is, I mean, all of these things are treasonous offenses in Kim Jong-un's eyes, and any one of them could be reason for him to feel he had to get rid of his brother. And, and finally, if I could just ask you on this, um, what the likely effect of President Trump's uh, remarkable statement, I wouldn't do that, mm. would be uh, for an agency, an American government, um, that is struggling every day to know as much as it can about uh, a North Korea that's closed and still threatening, this would have negative effects on efforts to gather information, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the big challenges with North Korea and different from other autocratic regimes, different from Iran or Libya under Gaddafi or whatever, is there's almost no human intelligence about North Korea. The CIA calls it the hardest of the hard targets. So if the CIA was, in fact, successful in recruiting Kim Jong-nam, that's a huge boon to them and to their understanding of the regime. So if I was somebody working at the CIA, and I heard the president say that and seemed to confirm the, that Kim Jong-nam was uh, working for the CIA, I think I'd be quite demoralized by that. So I want to uh, turn now to the, to the book. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary uh, narrative, like a novel. It, it has an arc 
and we'll get to where that arc goes, and to me it was a surprising place. But I want to begin uh, with a question of how you as a journalist put the story together. You say at one point early in the book that Kim Jong-un became an enduring obsession for you. Obsessions are good things for journalists because it puts us in a place where we just got to know the next fact. And walk this audience through your research into this amazing compound on the beach at Wong San where he and the other one percenters of North Korea hung out. You're tracking uh, stories about him to Switzerland. Just how you assembled the mm -hmm. narrative that's in the book. Yeah, I mean, when I returned, I'd previously covered North Korea, and when I returned in 2014, I was just so astonished that this young guy, he was 27 years old when he took over, that he had been able to hold on to the leadership and to defy all of these expectations. And I wanted to try to figure out why. And you know, as a reporter, I did what I, we do and went out and tried to report it out. Um, so I tried to recreate his childhood and bring together as much information uh, as I could about how he grew up, how he became this leader that he is today, how he justifies to himself all of the brutal things that he does to be, uh, re remain the leader. So uh, I was living in Japan and I found the Japanese sushi chef who had been living in the uh, royal household. And this is like such a good illustration of how little we know about Kim Jong-un and the kinds of people whose brains we will tap to find out about him. Like this is a very eccentric character, like somebody who left Japan during the boom years to move to North Korea. Um, but he had this kind of access to Kim Jong-un at a very young age and so he told me about the eighth birthday party where he was present, where Kim Jong-un was presented with a little general's uniform with epaulets and gold stars, and he was called a little general. And real generals came into his birthday party and saluted to him. And then later, I managed to track down his aunt and uncle who had uh, been his guardians in Switzerland, posing as his parents while he was at school there during his teenage years. And so they were able to confirm that for me. They were also at that birthday party, uh, the eighth birthday party where he was named the successor. So I really just tried to set out to find every single person I could who'd ever had any kind of encounter with him. And of course, a lot of the stories are anecdotal or very superficial, but I was hoping to gather together, you know, anything we could add to this would increase our understanding of this man who is such a threat to the outside world. One image that uh, haunted me was the, that of Kim Jong-un at, at uh, perhaps, uh, you know, 11 or 12 uh, as a schoolboy in Bern with an obsession for basketball. Mm -hmm every afternoon putting on his Chicago Bulls jersey with Michael Jordan's number. Talk to us about this weird basketball obsession that he, that he had and how it culminated bizarrely in his diplomacy with Dennis Rodman of all people, one of the weirdest characters ever to come out of the NBA. Yeah. I mean, this is this is real. Like he is a huge basketball fan. Every day after school in Bern, he was down at the high school shooting hoops, and nobody knew who he was. In fact, the Thai embassy was very close to this high school, so the other kids there just thought he was Thai. They they didn't know, but they did think it was quite strange that there was often 
a little row of Korean and you know, Asian adults sitting there on deck chairs cheering excessively every time <laughs> he scored a point or whatever and, and Kim Jong-un's trash talking the other things so they were, it was a little weird uh, then but he has been really it, what, trash talk from Kim Jong-un I'm trying to imagine whether you would call the other <laughs> players dotards or what they... <laughs> maybe that word came later that word came. but this started it was his mother was a very powerful influence on him as a child and this is something that's often overlooked but it was actually his mother that got him into basketball because there is a saying in Korean and South Korean mothers to this day think that um, if you play basketball you'll grow tall so she wanted her son to grow tall uh, because Kim Jong-il was a very short guy as we know so this she planted the seed in his head and it did become and he's taller than his father so maybe it worked I don't know and, and people knowing of this basketball obsession including mm -hmm. President Obama have, have tried to send emissaries. I think it's right that Madeleine Albright uh, sent uh, well, you tell the story. Yeah, I have seen this basketball several times. There in North Korea, there is this huge, like Buckingham Palace-style building that is the Gift Museum, which it displays all of the gifts that have ever been given to the leaders of North Korea. It's very bizarre. But in there, pride of place is this NBA basketball signed by many players, Michael Jordan, uh, that was delivered by Madeleine Albright when she went to meet Kim Jong Il there. So. You know, we don't know whether that was for the children or exactly how that was, but there is this strain of basketball there. And I think, uh, you know, we laugh at Kim Jong-un inviting Dennis Rodman or allowing Dennis Rodman to come in with Vice News and things. But another thing I discovered during the course of my reporting is that this was a serious discussion at the CIA in those early years. And uh, serious analysts I know went into the Oval Office and advised President Obama, like this may be a way to forge a bridge to this North Korean leader. Uh, but it didn't go anywhere until, until Vice News came along. So um, I, I want to turn to the narrative as Kim Jong-un becomes leader, mm -hmm. becomes, as your title says, the, the great successor. I want to remind people in the audience or watching on streaming that if you have questions that you'd like me to ask Anna, the hashtag post live uh, will send them to me uh, by, by the computer. So um, Kim Jong-un becomes the great successor in mm -hmm. 2012. Uh, and um, he, he um, has extraordinary self-confidence right from the beginning. He speaks more than his father t typically did. Give us a, a picture of the man who arrives uh, in, in power and then his course from there to what you describe in 2016 as the moment where he really plants his flag mm -hmm. at home and abroad. Yeah. So when he took over, he was only 27 years old, which is, you know, young anywhere, let alone in a hierarchical Confucian society like Korea's. And there was a lot of skepticism about whether he could do it, whether he could remain leader and keep it all together. And one of the surprising things, I think, is the fact that he did. He was very calculating and shrewd from the get-go in the way that he approached this job. Uh, he had a bunch of advisors. In fact, you know, many of the people who walked around his father's hearse with him at the funeral were people who had served his father. Some of them had served his grandfather. You know, the man right now who is the titular head of North Korea, he was foreign minister in 1984 when Kim Jong-un was born. So these people have served the regime for a long time. And we think they were his advisors. They helped him consolidate his rule. But he very ruthlessly 
got rid of all of these people one by one um, once they'd served their purpose for him. So that included his uncle who disappeared, that included the head of the army who had helped the, with the transition, the propaganda chief, like all of these eminence grise of the regime just disappeared because he was done with them. And so he showed an ability to be very um, brutal and ruthless to it, which you know, served one purpose there, but also was a powerful deterrent message to anybody who might think about questioning him in the future, especially the execution of his uncle. Like, he was sending this message, you know, this man is so ruthless that he will dispatch with his own uncle. And I think that enabled him to prove his mettle and to be this strong leader so that when he stood up on the stage in 2016 at the uh, Workers' Party Congress, I, I was there in Pyongyang for that, I was really astonished to see this young man holding forth in front of three and a half thousand, you know, 60-something generals and Workers' Party apparatchiks. And not just the confidence he showed, but he laid out this quite ambitious plan for economic improvements, as they call it. They don't say reform because that implies there's something wrong with their system. Uh, but he really put his name to this plan and a five-year economic plan in a way that was much more bolder than his father had ever done. Also, in 17 years in power, his father spoke in public only once, and that was one sentence, you know, a little chant to the Workers' Party. So the fact that Kim Jong-un was up there so confident, um, so willing to hold forth, to make himself accountable, he showed himself to be a very, very different leader from his father in particular. And of course, we only saw more and more of that as, you know, 2017 and 18 unfolded. One of the strong themes in your book is the way in which um, this uh, most closed society, the hermit kingdom, it was often called, has become more open. It's not as hermetic uh, as, it, as it once was. Uh, and, and there's a younger generation you, you describe in a marvelous scene how you came back to Pyongyang and saw uh, people dressed in clothes from H&M and Zara and the, you know, the stores that you'd find anywhere in the world, but certainly in China, to which some of them had, had, had traveled. And you have the sense of a momentum developing because of that. There's another marvelous detail that Anna has about people floating balloons with uh, USB flash drives that have got on them yeah, everything you can imagine people might send across the border. So uh, tell us about that modernization um, spark, if you will, and whether you think that's what's powering mm -hmm. at, at the center of, of Kim Jong-un's uh, vision. Right, so Kim Jong-un has very um, deliberately looked at the economy and you know, thought about, like, first of all, when he came in, he tended to the nuclear program, of course, for several years, but he tolerated the growth of the markets there. So there are these private markets, or they're state-run but privately operated markets. The number of them has doubled under Kim Jong-un. They are now across the country everywhere. And people are like entrepreneurial in North Korea now, the state that was a command socialist economy for so long. So you see people, cutting hair or um, selling homemade snacks or importing rice cookers and uh, clothes and things from China and making their own living, making their own way and increasingly independent of the state. So that is a big change, like the biggest change in North Korea in 70 years, I think, that there is this nascent entrepreneurial class, there's a growing middle class in North Korea. 
Um, so across the country, more and more people are able to make their own livings and earn their own uh, wages and buy their own food. Uh, but no one has benefited anywhere near as much as the people in Pyongyang, the 1% who keep Kim Jong-un in power. And he has very deliberately enabled them to get rich. So they are, um, there's a lot of corruption. Uh, people who are officials in this regime are on the take, whether they're military or party officials. Everybody's trying to earn money on the sides. But as a result, they have become richer. They have more disposable income. You can see very obvious conspicuous consumption in North Korea now. People walk around with their smartphones and like anywhere else. Um, I mean, these smartphones are not connected to the outside world. So they can only talk amongst themselves, but still it, it looks like there is progress. And so, you know, some of the young millennials who live in Pyongyang which is uh, sometimes called Pyonghattan, because of this kind of development of the elite there, they, are, um, they told me about all the things they can enjoy. So one of the little things they said, they love to work out and go to the gym and go to yoga classes, not because they're exercise freaks, but because that's their excuse to wear tight-fitting clothing and flirt with opposite sex. And there's like a whole gym scene in North Korea. They, there's cappuccino bars and things in these gyms and there's a sense for them that life is getting closer to what they could imagine having in Beijing. I think that's very deliberate on Kim Jong-un's part because these are the people who keep him in power, this elite in Pyongyang. And these millennials in Pyongyang are the people who could keep him in power for 30 or 40 years to come. So he's really focusing on them. So in the arc of this story. Uh, he has planted his flag firmly. He drives uh, quite ruthlessly toward nuclear weapons uh, capability, the ability to deliver those weapons with missiles. And then in your story, we reach January 1, 2018. Mm -hmm. We have a new president in America. And just tell us about that turn in January 2018 and how it takes us then towards Singapore and Hanoi. Yeah. The sign actually came on November the 29th of 2017 when North Korea conducted its last long-range missile launch. And it put out a statement that said, we have now completed our rocket program. And that word completed, to me, that was the sign. I was like, okay, they're ready to talk now. They're done. Uh, because all he needed really was this credible threat. He needed to be able to show that he had the missiles, he had the nukes. He hadn't been able to put them together, but he had defied all the expectations to create these two things. So it was reasonable to think he could if he wanted to. But this was really the signal that he was now ready for like Kim 2.0. He was ready to start talking, to embark on a diplomatic offensive, because when he took over as the leader, he revived this policy that his grandfather had introduced called the Byongjin policy. It's a simultaneous uh, progress policy. So that was nuclear program and economic development. He was done with nuclear issues. He was now turning to the economy. And he can't grow his economy while there are all of these crippling sanctions imposed on him. Uh, and they are hurting. I think they've really um, hurt trade into North Korea. So he needed to try to metamorphosize into this, you know, benevolent, charming, misunderstood dictator. And he, so he came out into the world. He started meeting Xi Jinping, first of all. He came to South Korea and met uh, Moon Jae-in. 
and tried to present himself as a completely reasonable, responsible leader of a nuclear-armed state, uh, just like any of the other members of the nuclear club. Um, of course, this was an act, but it also showed how savvy he's been and able to turn on the charm, how to push all President Trump's buttons in terms of beautiful love letters and the things that he sent him. Uh, so, yeah, he has been quite savvy in the way he's done this. So, um, tell us how you imagine the relationship between Kim Jong-un, brutal uh, mm -hmm. leader of the probably the world's most totalitarian state, and Donald Trump, President of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many different uh, speculations in the, in the press. Is this father-son, brother-brother, gangster-gangster, or as I tease you uh, in the green room, is this t just two guys in search of the Nobel Peace Prize? I mean, so what? Uh, tell us how, how, how you think about the two of them. Mm -hmm. It was really fascinating to watch Kim Jong-un's interactions with uh, Donald Trump and, in fact, Moon Jae-in before that during these summits. And that in Korean culture, there is a lot of politeness and levels of honorifics and things. And Kim Jong-un was really playing the junior partner there. He was using very honorific, flattering language, which the translator told President Trump that, uh, that he was using. He allowed him to like go first and all of these things to show that he was the junior and Donald Trump was the senior. So I think he was positioning himself in that way. But part of the, I mean, reason I was hoping my book would be able to add to some of what we know about him is because the North Koreans know an awful lot about Donald Trump. They have read The Art of the Deal. They have read Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff. You know, I know somebody who has seen them reading this. They, they pass his tweets. I heard somebody who'd had track two meetings with the North Koreans, and they had this encyclopedic knowledge of everything that Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump had ever tweeted. Um, so they have really been doing their homework and trying to figure out what motivates him and what might appeal to him. But there was, there's very little in the other direction, right? Well, I assume that the CIA has quite a lot, but you know, in terms of the general public, there's very little in the other direction. So I wanted to try to look at the kind of person and personality Kim Jong-un was and what his motivations are. So let me uh, conclude my questions with a discussion of how you, in the end, uh, assess uh, what's ahead. And then I want to go to a couple of the good questions that we have from uh, people uh, who are uh, watching this and, and sending them on Twitter and, 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 and Facebook. What's uh, fascinating to me about your book is that it is absolutely devastating in its assessment of this North Korean leader's uh, brutality. But uh, you ha have concluded that his opening towards the United States and the West mm -hmm. uh, is, is a s serious one. You, you s said that your feeling uh, back in June 9, uh, 2018 before the Singapore summit was maybe it's time to try something different. Mm -hmm. uh, I had the same uh, feeling and wrote it in, in my columns. But interestingly to me, your, your optimism about the future continued even after the Hanoi summit, widely judged to have been uh, a, a significant failure. And you, you end your book by quoting Kim. 
And you quote him saying in a, a rare press interview he gave after the Hanoi summit, my gut feeling is that good results will come. So take us into that, why you cho chose to end the book that way, what, what your own feeling is about the good results. Uh, and you know, one of our uh, Twitter uh, questioners has said, what's this country gonna look like in 10 years? Mm. Yeah, and kudos to David Nakamura, who'll come out next, who got that answer from Kim Jong-un. That was extraordinary. Um, you know, covering North Korea all this time, I should know better than to be optimistic, right? Like, with North Korea, you are, have a much better chance of being right if you're pessimistic and expect everything to fall to pieces, because that has been the history. But just looking at Kim Jong-un, and seeing he is so different from his father. Yes, there are some things that he does the same, but he is much bolder, he is much more gregarious, he seems to enjoy it uh, much more than his father ever did. And, but I also think because he's so young, uh, he knows that the situation of North Korea now is untenable. He needs a sense of economic growth, of improvement, of the gap between North and South Korea or North Korea and China, not getting any wider, if not actually getting smaller. Um, so I do think that he wants to try to normalize the relationship, that he would like a peace treaty uh, to end the Korean War for once and for all. He would like to be seen as a responsible leader, you know, with uh, like a developmental dictator like there has been in other parts of Asia and Singapore and other places. But having said that, and so, I, so that is the source of my optimism, right? Like I think he needs this process. And even today, despite the complete disaster of Hanoi, the signals are still very positive. You know, he, they are still talking about wanting to get back to talks. Today in Korea, Kim Jong-un sent his sister into the DMZ to present flowers to a former first lady who died. Um, there are these outreaches that show even the missile launches recently these rockets I think were a sign of frustration he wants the attention back on him he wants this process to continue because I think he knows he has this very unique window of or limited window of opportunity right now that he has a very pro-engagement uh, president in South Korea who has really been the glue in all this whole process who will be out of office in 2022 he has uh, a very unconventional American president as his counterpart who has shown a willingness to do things differently and to not listen to his advisors. And that is an opportunity for him. Uh, one of the things I did uncover during the course of my reporting was that um, the North Korean diplomats in New York actually went to a famous fortune teller in Koreatown and asked if Donald Trump would be reelected. Um, and the answer was yes. So I guess the North Koreans think they have six years, not, not two. Uh, but they have the sense that this is an opportunity for them to strike a deal which may not still be there, you know, if there was somebody who did things more by the book in future. So I do not think by any stretch of the imagination that we are seeing a North Korean Dong Xiaoping, that he's going to try and open up the economy, that even very limited Chinese style reform and opening, you know, that's impossible for this totalitarian state. But I think he will try to make as much progress on the economic front as he can without opening up the information. So, so to put the question directly, 
President Trump basically is making a bet, I think, that Kim Jong-un needs economic opening, certainly an end of sanctions, but, but beyond that. Badly enough that um, it's a good bet to continue to engage him. Is President Trump right? Yes, I think he's right. I think that all of the efforts over the past decades have not worked, uh, and it's right to try something different. Um, I think there are a lot, I mean, I do not for a second think that Kim Jong-un is going to give up his nuclear weapons, but I think there can be a different process going on. I think they should be working on opening a liaison office. It's very difficult for the two sides to talk. Like, they should be talking. Uh, so I think if they can continue this process, um, maybe they can make some change. And I, I think, you know, North Korea has survived for this long by being this hermit kingdom, by shutting the people off from the outside world and keeping them isolated. So we in the outside world should not be helping them to do that. We should be helping the North Korean people to get more information, to bring people out, you know, why are there not North Korean soccer players coming to the US and musicians and things? Like, why is there not this people-to-people -people exchange that we can help open their eyes and, and to not allow the regime to isolate the country for decades to come? And a, a final question before I turn this over to my colleagues uh, to continue mm -hmm. uh, to explore these issues with, with Anna. The question that, that haunts us when we are in moments of crisis with North Korea uh, that I'm sure uh, has consumed thousands of hours out at Langley among analysts, is whether he, Kim Jong-un, is a rational and deterrable actor mm -hmm. or whether he is irrational and impulsive. You probably know him better than any journalist in the world. What's your answer? He's rational, absolutely. The proof, he's still in power. Seven and a half years on with all of these odds stacked against him, you know, this regime that must have been suspicious of him, this outside world expecting him to fail, imposing so much pressure on him to fail, and he has somehow managed to withstand it all. He could not have done this if he was not a rational actor. I mean, we should make no bone, you know, he is definitely not a good person person, right? Like, this is not a nice guy, but he is, and so when I say that he's rational, I don't want anybody to think that I am sympathetic to him or in any way, but I think if you look at it from a cold political scientist kind of view, he has done everything he needs to do to stay in power, and he couldn't have done that if he was a total nut job. Uh, Anna Fifield, a brilliant book, obviously a brilliant journalist. Thank you so much. Thank Anna. you, David. Thank you very much. Thank you for the nice conversation. So, we will be right back. I think we need to let folks clear the stage and rearrange things, but this will continue momentarily. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. Goodyear Auto Service takes pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com.